Well, like my sister said, my name is Gino Allison. I bring you greetings from the South Suburban Vineyard Church where my lovely wife Shannon and I uh, pastor. I have my executive assistant with me this morning, my oldest son, Joe. And it's an honor to be here. Yeah, you can give it up for Joe. That's all right. Well, I just want to just first honor the, the, the pastors of this house, uh, Matt and Brittany. I haven't known Matt for, for long, but he and I have uh, gotten acquainted over the last couple of years as he's taken over here. We spent some time actually at your regional conference in Urbana just a few days ago. And so I'm honored for the invitation, but I have a, a deeper connection with my good friend Ben Hare back there who took me under his wing when I was just a, a, a college student, came to the University of Illinois, found the vineyard, and I walked into the vineyard for the first time back in 2001, and I've been in the vineyard ever since, and Ben is one of the reasons why not only that I've uh, come to the vineyard and stayed, but that I'm pastoring today. Anything that I do well in ministry, I would say that Ben has his fingerprints all over my life in ministry. So Ben, I appreciate you. Don't want to embarrass you, but I did want to honor you this morning. And I'm privileged, though, to be uh, here continuing a teaching series that you've been in for the last several weeks, a series that you've simply been calling Stories, the Kingdom Parables of Jesus. And one of the things you must know about me is that I love communication. Uh, I consider myself to be a student of communication. I have a communications degree from the University of Illinois. I consider myself as a preacher, a student of preacher, preaching, and my wife and kids will tell you that I'm constantly listening to all kinds of podcasts on not just on how to preach, but on theology. And I'm also just listening to lots of communicators because this anything that I want to do for a long time, I want to be getting better at it, right? So as a student of communication in general, especially a student of preaching, I listen to a lot of preachers throughout the course of a week. And some of them I'm listening for their content. Some preachers I like, they bring really good content. I may not love their style, but I like how they put together a message. Other preachers I don't drive at all, drive at all with their content. I can't get with how they're expositing the text, but I do like the style, how they weave together stories, how they transition from one thing to the next. And so uh, I'm really interested in communication. Um, I listen to a lot of sports uh, podcasts because I found that those guys are some of the best communicators. I desire to be a conversational speaker. Right, rather than being tied to my notes. So I'm listening to guys who are just good at conversation and I'm picking up phrases and various idioms to tie into communication because I want to be a student of communication. But you can't be a real good communicator or a student of communication, especially as a Christian, without studying the best communicator there is, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Jesus, in case you haven't put it together, was a great communicator. He always had good content. He always had a compelling method. He always knew how to get right at the heart of the matter. He always understood his audience. He was a master teacher, and above all, he was a great storyteller, largely because he employed the use of parables, right? And as Pastor Matt said a couple weeks ago, parables are earthly stories with a heavenly meaning or message. Earthly stories that have a heavenly meaning or message. In fact, if you just Google parables of the Bible, you'll get a long list. And as you start to look through those subjects and what Jesus was sort of getting at when he was using those parables, it was often trying to take some weighty kingdom matter and put it on a low shelf so that regular average people like you and me can get a hold of it. Think about a big consequential kingdom principle that is essential for us to get 
that Jesus would regularly bring down low so that we could understand it. Now, he could have just used stories from his life, things that he witnessed, but the thing about stories is they have to actually apply to what you're talking about. Unless you want to fabricate it and move the details around to make them fit what you're trying to say, real stories, you're at the mercy of like the content of those stories, right? But parables, you can bend the details of those parables to the point that you're trying to make. And so these parables, these made-up stories were really, really helpful because Jesus could craft the story. He could fabricate a story to make his point. And today I want to continue this parable series by talking about the subject of prayer. And prayer simply is the act of communication by humans with the sacred or the holy or the divine. In our case, we're communicating with almighty God. And in the Christian sense, prayer is mutual communication. Our God talks back to us. Amen. We talk to God through prayer and he talks back to us. We commune with God and he communes with us. We are present to him in prayer and he is present to us. This is really quite special and it can be unique when it comes to prayer across different religions. Prayer is one of the most important spiritual disciplines. It's also a gift. It's a gift that we bring to God of our attention, of our affection, of our devotion and presence. And it is a gift that he gives to us because when we reach to God, God reaches back. When we reach toward heaven through prayer, heaven reaches back. But prayer, as you might have put together, is easy to misunderstand, which is why we need more conversation about prayer rather than less. We need more instruction on prayer rather than less. We need more discourse on prayer and not less. And so today, in the spirit of that, I want to talk about prayer, and I want to discuss the parable of the persistent neighbor. So if you would meet me in your Bibles this morning, in Luke chapter 11, that's where we'll begin. Luke chapter 11, if you're old school and you have a paper Bible, feel free to turn to it there. Also, I won't be offended at all if you're interacting with the text through your mobile device, your phone, or your tablet, so long as you're actually looking up the scripture. Amen? Luke chapter 11. I think it'll also be displayed on the screen. Luke chapter 11. I'm going to start at verse 1, but while you find that, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your uh, people. Thank you so much for your presence. Thank you so much that we can gather to worship you today. I thank you, Father, that your spirit is moving upon us. And as the worship team set an atmosphere of worship and expectation, Lord, we know that you want to come and do something special in the room today. I pray that our hearts would be soft landing places for your word and your truth. I pray that you would put power on these words that you've given me to speak, Lord. May I not be a distraction today. May you do what only you can do. We ask all these things in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Luke chapter 1, excuse me, Luke chapter 11. I'm going to start at verse 1. Once Jesus was in a certain place praying, and as he finished, one of his disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. Jesus says, this is how you should pray. Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon and give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation. Then teaching them more about prayer, he used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit, and I have nothing for him to eat. 
And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me. The door is locked for the night and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. And so I tell you, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open for everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Verse 11, you fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is a really good text. It's a really timeless text. And it frames for us what happens when the disciples may be jealous that John's disciples are getting more, you know, helpful instruction than them, comes to Jesus and says, Master, teach us to pray. Jesus is probably locked and loaded. He's ready to go. Maybe he's been wanting them to ask this question. And so he's already got a lesson prepared for them. And here in this text, we get an abridged version of the prayer that many of us have committed to memory, uh, known as the Lord's Prayer. And so Jesus says, pray like this. And I'm going to read the full version that we see in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sinned against us. And do not let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. And some of you know that by heart because you've said it a whole lot. Now, does this not cover all the bases, right? If you're looking for a, a, a prayer template that, like, covers everything, does this not do it all? It begins with a salutation, our Father, and this helpfully orients us. We're not talking to our buddy. We're not talking to our pal. We're talking about something, somebody with reverence, somebody with respect, somebody's high above us, reminds us that God is holy, and it asks Lord, may your kingdom come soon. And so as we jog through this prayer, it's posturing our hearts to know who we're talking to, but also it covers what we should be talking to God about. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Give us today our daily bread, right? The dailiness of our interaction with God. It's not like, let me go to Sam's Club and get a pallet of what I need, and I'll come back next month. Like, there's a dailiness to our interaction with God. Forgive us from our sins. It's dealing with our deepest need and our biggest issue Keep us from temptation and protect us from the evil one. This is a great example of how to pray. A perfect template. You can recite this verbatim or you could use it as a template and sort of put the meat on the bones as you walk through this. Do we really need anything more than this? Well, obviously we do because Jesus keeps teaching beyond the point where he gives us the Lord's Prayer. He doesn't stop at the Lord's Prayer and he continues to help us understand how we should come to God, how often we should come to God, and that prayer is something that should be consistent and persistent. In order, in order to drive this home, he gives us the parable of the persistent neighbor. And as I spend the rest of my time this morning walking through this parable, I see in this parable three permissions that Jesus gives us that are helpful as we try to orient our life 
and prayer with the Lord. Three permissions. I hope you stay with me. I'll run through them as quickly as possible. The first permission is to be shameless. Permission to be shameless. And when I talk about permission to be shameless, I'm talking about permission to be bold. Jesus tells the story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit and I have nothing for him to eat. I don't know about you, but this doesn't seem like something you should be waking me up for. (laughs) Right? And suppose he calls out from his bedroom as any reasonable person would at midnight. The door is locked for the night and my family and I are in bed. I can't help you. Paraphrase, go away. You're bugging me. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless, your shameless persistence. Right? Now, don't imagine our nice homes now where we've got several bedrooms. And if you hear a knock at the door, you sort of walk through your house, your hallways, down your stairs, and you don't really interrupt your, anybody on the way at way to the door, right? Don't think about that. Think about like a one-room house where everybody's like right there. And so if somebody knocks on the door, especially if I have to turn on the lights to get you some bread that you could have easily come come back later for, it's going to disturb everybody in the house. This is a major inconvenience, which is why the word shameless is appropriately used in this context. Now, this is what Jesus is describing about how our prayer life should be with God. And I got to tell you, I'm immediately at odds with what Jesus lays out here for us. I'm immediately at odds with anything that asks me to be shameless. Because this runs against the grain of my personality and several of my personal rules of life. Shameless? Do you know any shameless people? If they're sitting with you today, don't look at them. Just look (laughs) right at me. Do you know anybody who's shameless? Actually, in our context and in our culture, like shameless is not a good thing to be, right? It's often used pejoratively. Shameless people are usually lacking in self-awareness. They're usually landing awkwardly on people. They usually don't understand how they're coming across. They're making audacious asks. They've just come lumbering in all over the place, and I've found that a healthy bit of shame and maybe the potential to, like, be shamed serves to keep us in check, serves to keep us from landing awkwardly on people, serves to keep us from asking things that we shouldn't ask. It serves to keep you from knocking on your neighbor's door at midnight for something that's not an emergency, right? We are are guided and discipled toward uh, thoughtfulness, and not shamelessness. And so our culture likes us to be decent and practice a measure of decorum. By that I mean keeping with good taste and propriety, appropriate behavior, good manners. Shameless people don't typically get an invite to parties, or at least a second invite to parties. <laughs> and I was raised a certain way as a, as a preacher's kid, My father was very much uh, concerned with us having good manners and being orderly, right? As a preacher's kid, we would often find ourselves at other people's houses. Like, we would have to go to somebody's house to counsel them. All seven of us would go. And if you're like me, like right before we went in their house, I I, I play this scene over and over. I'm in the car, five of my siblings in the car, and my father would turn around and we would get a speech. 
<laughs> when we get in here, get somewhere, sit down. Don't touch nothing. Don't look at nothing. Don't speak unless you've been spoken to. You are not hungry. If they offer you, <laughs> y'all ate yesterday. You're not hungry. They offer you something, no thank you, right? And so everywhere we go, there'd be this speech, and we would sit there quietly. We're walking down the street. My father would have us walking single file line down the right side of the sidewalk. It was very important to him. And so this whole idea of like not working within the rules and not thinking about decorum and decency and being shameless, honestly, it cuts against the grain of who I naturally am. And I'm saying all this because I believe I import this into my life with God, into my prayer life. And so when Jesus tells me to show up shamelessly, I must confess to you that I'm immediately at odds with that permission that he gives us. But there's more to this. There's a second permission that Jesus gives here. He gives us permission to be persistent. And if shameless is permission to be bold, persistent speaks to frequency. Persistent means like over and over, how often you come, right? And Paul says in First Thessalonians that we should never stop praying. Anybody ever look at that verse and go, what exactly does that mean? Like, I got a job. I've got kids. I got a life. Never stop praying? Does that mean that I'm supposed to be constantly in my prayer closet, prayer shawl over my head, rocking and praying all day? What exactly does this mean? But Jesus gives us permission here to be persistent. And please understand, when I say permission, it's not like you can or you can't be this. This seems like a prescription. It seems like this is the way to be in order to get this right. Permission to be persistent. Verse 9, and so I tell you, keep on asking, and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. Keep knocking, and the door will be open to you. And again, I find myself immediately at odds with what Jesus lays out here. Because the way I'm personally wired, I'm only going to ask you something once. Just once. And if I get the slightest sense that you don't want to do it, just the slightest sense, unless it's urgent, unless it's highly consequential, unless somebody is dead or dying, I will leave you alone about it because that's how I'm wired. Can I press in a little bit deeper? I don't even like to be around people asking the same question over and over. In fact, my, my oldest son is here, and he'll tell you, I regularly, this scenario regularly plays out in my house. Hey, Joe, can I see your controller? Let me see your controller. Mine is broken. No, I'll give you a dollar. No, I'll give you six Starbucks. Let me just, and finally I've had enough. I said, hey, look, can he see your controller? No, don't ask him again. I can't even be around it. Can I press in deeper? I, I don't haggle, right? Either I can afford what you've got or I can't. I'll do a little bit of negotiating, but I, the back and forth, the asking over and over again, it's not in my wiring, but I'm married to somebody who's very different, right? <laughs> in fact, the last two cars that we bought, my wife went to the dealership alone, picked out the car, worked out all the arrangements, and I came, <laughs> I came to help her sign the papers because this woman, she is a haggler. 
And I said to her once, I said, baby, you know they work a little bit of that money into the price so that that guy can eat, right? And her posture is, that's his problem. That's not mine. <laughs> I'm like, I think this guy's going to owe the dealership money if he says yes to what you've proposed. She doesn't care. She is persistent and shameless in this way. I just, I'm, I'm not going to go back and forth. The way I'm wired is at odds with this. And when it comes to God, in my most honest moments, there's just some issues I have with how he has the spiritual life set up, with how prayer works. And maybe you don't want to hear the guest preacher say this, but sometimes my posture toward the Lord is like, why, why do we even have to ask for that? Like, why if you constructed this, so that for these basic things that seem basic to like, why do we even have to ask you to eradicate racism and white supremacy in this country? Like, why, why do I have to ask for that? Why, why do we have to pray for starving children across? Like, shouldn't that just be one of the things that you fix? Shouldn't we have to? We, why do we have to ask that? That, that, that the Hamas not bomb Israel and that they not inhumanely bomb. Like, like, isn't that something that you would just do because you're good? And no doubt you could come up with your list. If you were to pile on here, you would say, yeah, well, it, it's the thing we do have to ask. Like, well, why do we have to ask you over and over for these things? I'm confessing to you like an internal rub I have with how this whole prayer thing is set up. That's like my kids at six o'clock and they're asking for dinner and they ask again and they ask again. It's like at some point I'm, I'm like a bad parent because I should have had dinner on the table. I know this is flawed. I know this is how this, this isn't how this works, but I'm confessing to you just my rub with how this prayer thing seems to be set up telling me to be shameless and you're telling me to be resistant about things that in my heart of hearts I feel like maybe we shouldn't even have to ask these things in the first place and you couple that with my firm belief in God's sovereignty and the fact that he is incorruptibly good like I firmly believe that I'm not shaky on that and when these two things converge I just go I don't need to pray about that God you have your mind already worked out your mind already made up not to mention, I'm not asking you over and over for these things. And so, I don't pray in this way. I'm not shameless in my praying. I'm not persistent in my praying. And me and my spiritual director just this week on Friday had a real conversation uh, a real a real session about my my complicated relationship with prayer as i wrestle with this text to bring it to you today it unearthed a whole bunch of things that my spiritual director helped me work through in fact i should pay her double for this week's session because we really did some work particularly with my complicated relationship with prayer and i wonder that if in a room this size i'm not the only one who has a who has a complicated relationship with prayer the shamelessness that Jesus tells us to come to him with and the persistence that he insists that we come to him with, 
I don't pray this way. Shamelessly, no. Persistently, no. I don't pray this way. I'm learning to. I should, but I don't pray this way. And I've considered for the last couple of weeks that this might be the culprit or the root of some of my spiritual dryness. That I would approach God according to how I'm wired rather than how he tells me I should come to him. That I would impose my rules of life and my own personal beliefs on my prayer life rather than what the master tells me to. This brokenness in my prayer life, the culprit and root of some of my spiritual dryness is rooted in how I relate to God naturally. And I've come to the conclusion that maybe I'm too logical, that maybe I'm too principled that maybe I'm too thought out. Maybe my prayers are too dignified, dripping with self-sufficiency and too well-reasoned, the very opposite of shameless and persistent. And some of you might say that you don't pray in this way either, that you are not shameless and that you are not persistent. But as I wrestle with this this week, I thought maybe Jesus is on to something. Maybe shamelessness and persistence is the way to go. Shameless and persistent, but rooted in the posture that begins in the Lord's Prayer that says, may your kingdom come soon and may your will be done here on earth. That my shamelessness and my persistence can be rooted in a deference to God's will, but I still should come to him and approach him with that shamelessness and persistence of the pesky, persistent neighbor. There's a third permission that I see in this text that we shouldn't ignore. It's the final one, and it's a permission to be childlike. We talked about a permission to be shameless, permission to be persistent, but what about this permission to be childlike? When I looked up synonyms for the word childlike, Uh, something stood out to me. In all the words that they listed, one word stood out to me, and it's the word artless. Artless. Which means without effort, without pretentiousness, it's natural and it's simple. It's without skill or finesse. Like a little child. Like children of a certain age before they get slick on you. Before they start thinking too much. And before they start putting things together, artless, effortless, without pretense, unconstructed, without skill, finesse, they just come to you indiscriminately with everything. And this last section of this text or passage really got to me this week. Since Jesus is such a great storyteller, it's interesting how as the character shifts from the pesky neighbor with the ill-timed request to frame our prayer relationship with God in prayer to a child interacting with a parent. You know how that shifts? The main character in this story, this discourse on prayer, shifts from a pesky neighbor, and suddenly it shifts to a child interacting with a parent, a child-parent relationship. And I've got four children, four boys, from age 15 on down to six, and so it wasn't hard for this to hit me right where I live. Jesus says, you fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a steak instead? 
a snake? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? He frames this, the child-parent relationship. Zeke is my six-year-old, but he, he's the boss. He, he runs the house, and he knows it. And it wouldn't be hard if we were at home, if we were in my home church context, You'd meet Zeke about five minutes after they release the kids because it doesn't matter what I'm doing. I could be having a sensitive, tender conversation with somebody from the congregation. I could be praying for somebody. They could be getting massive deliverance and demons, you know, manifesting. It doesn't matter. Zeke's going to come at a certain time, and he's going to tap me on the leg. Excuse me, Daddy. And do you know what he wants? He wants my phone. Of all the things he can ask, I know what he wants. He wants my phone. He wants to play a game on my phone. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. He didn't fall back and say, this looks intense. I better give this a few minutes while this demon comes out. (laughs) Or while this woman gathers herself. Or maybe he's talking about something really sensitive that a child shouldn't hear. He's artless. He, He doesn't care. And it's the same thing that has him bursting into the bathroom while I'm in the shower and asking me for the screen time password so he can unlock the phone. He hasn't put it together that, hey, maybe this isn't a good time. Maybe he, let me let him towel off first. He's artless. He's not constructing things in that way. It's the same thing that makes him wake me up out of my sleep and ask me how many sleeps until vacation like he doesn't care he doesn't think in terms of days or weeks how many sleeps how many times do i go to sleep and wake up before we go to vacation he didn't say you know dad looks really tired today let me let him sleep this can wait until at least 7 a.m he's artless he doesn't put those things together it doesn't matter to him he has a request he has a need I think of it in terms of my wife, my lovely wife, Shannon. We just put this little deck out on the front porch. We bought this house uh, when we went to church plant, and it never had a porch. And we were always envious of our, of our neighbor's porch. And so we finally put this little deck, and this summer we were out there every night. And this is what we did at the end of the day. Sat on that porch and just decompressed, right? And I realized that there's a way that my wife decompresses that's very different from the way that I decompress. There's a lot of processing involved and what I bring to her. Ah, she, she wouldn't really be able to help me with that. Oh, long, after I'm, long after I've reconciled with that person, she'll still be angry with that person. I'm not going to go tell her that, right? Oh, I'm sorting, I'm, and I'm doing all these sorts of things, right? My wife, she doesn't, she doesn't decompress in that way. You know what she does? She's keeping it together all day at work. She's keeping it together all day with the kids. And so when it comes to me, she backs the dump truck up to me. She doesn't sort it. Doesn't rifle through it and say, oh, this isn't a good time. Oh, that, you know, she backs the dump truck up and she just pulls the lever and everything just spills out. And uh, I used to uh, be at odds with that approach uh, until I started to wrestle with maybe the sorting isn't helpful. Maybe the sorting keeps me unresolved, and maybe I need some place to go where I don't have to be processed or rehearsed or artful. 
Maybe she's found a more excellent way. Maybe Zeke's approach to being discriminate about what he comes to his dad about, whether he's happy or he's sad, whether he's glad or anxious or scared. This is my daddy. He's my guy. I'm bringing it to him. My wife thinks this is my husband. This is my man. This is my person. I got to keep it together with everybody else. He's going to get the whole dump truck. Maybe they're onto something. Maybe this is the sort of shameless way, the sort of uh, persistent way, the childlike, artless way that we're supposed to be with God. Maybe I've overcomplicated prayer. Maybe I've overcomplicated. Maybe I'm thinking too hard about it. Maybe instead of thinking, well, God, you've already got that worked out. Or I'm not asking you for that again. Maybe the shameless persistence is a a means to get me to a place where I'm focused more on communion with God than anything else. Maybe the goal in commanding us to be shameless and persistent and childlike is to help us prioritize communion. Communion over getting the blessing that you might ask for. Communion over getting the answer that you might ask for. Communion with God over getting the permission that you seek or the open door or window that you're asking for. Maybe instead of prioritizing that and trying to weigh whether or not God's going to say yes or how many times you've asked, maybe maybe it's communion with God that's important. Because communion with God gets me proximate to the source of my strength and power. Communion with God gives me permission to ask without artfulness, Without overprocessing, it's communion with God that lets me be unfiltered and possibly even accidentally irreverent as I'm honest with God and I lay it all out. Lord, why'd you let this happen? Like when the cancer comes back. But when it's the second miscarriage, right? When you were up for the promotion and you didn't get it. When the young man or the young woman breaks your heart, like, like bring all that to him. Maybe in the communion I will talk myself clear. Without God giving me any answers or any turning on any light bulbs. And many of us who do counseling work or pastoral work, sometimes we sit there for an hour and we say, uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh huh. Tell me more about that. Well, why'd you do that? And at the end, they go, "Thank you so much for your wise counsel." And I go, "I didn't. I just let you talk yourself clear." And so, how many of us have found that in communion with God, the Lord didn't drop any heavenly bombs on us? We just got some kingdom therapy because we were just able to come in an artless, unrehearsed, unfiltered way, and we were able to just be, be proximate with the Lord, unguarded unreserved, unrestrained, and we talked ourselves clear just in the nearness of communion with God. But in proximity to God, we were able to see God's vantage rather than our own limited earthly one. Maybe in communion we ascend to a place of enlightenment and maybe even a greater indifference about the outcomes. And maybe this is what Paul means when he says, pray all the time or as often as you can 
or to maintain a posture of prayer so that we're regularly coming to God. Why? Because it's more about communion than answers, more about communion than help. And so when God gives us these divine permissions through Scripture, this beautiful parable, he's encouraging us, no demanding that we come to God with everything. Don't do too much editing or processing. Don't try to finesse your prayer life with God. Be artless, be finesseless, be uncomplicated, be indiscriminate, bring everything. And as I wrestle with this text, as I'm sure you might be, I, I come to the conclusion that I need to get over myself in relationship to God in prayer. Because whenever I'm, I'm, I'm my wiring or my rules of life have me at odds with what the scriptures prescribe, then it's me who needs to change and not Jesus. It's me who needs to reorient myself and not the Savior. And so how do we walk this out? For some of us, and I'm talking to myself, this will require a complete overhaul of our prayer lives. We'll need a complete rewiring and cause us to relate to God as God as not, and not as we do as with the other humans encumbered by a list of social rules and norms and all sorts of decorum. Come like my six-year-old at any time and for everything, the big stuff, the small stuff, the happy stuff, the scary stuff. When the boy finally asks you out and when he breaks your heart for the pregnancy and the miscarriage, for the wedding and the divorce, when the promotion comes and when it doesn't, when you make the team and when you get cut, like everything Shameless, persistent, childlike. Do you pray that way? I don't, but I'm learning to. Because we've been given permission to.